0: So what's going on ladies and gentlemen? Today we're here with Marianne Williamson. Now she's running for president of the United States. She is with the Democratic Party in this particular election. So Marianne, thank you for joining us on the show today.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, first and foremost, we want to congratulate you on getting your donors. That's awesome to see that.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So the first question I want to ask you is what made you want to run for president?
1: You know, I think that anyone who runs for president, by definition, I'm sure this is true of everyone. We run for president because we think we'd be the best person for the job. And I think I'd be the best person for the job of those who are running because the conversation I'm having with the American people goes deeper than the conversation that's currently taking place within the political establishment. And I come from a field where... Which has made me very aware that personal transformation does not begin, does not happen unless there is deep honesty. This country needs to have a much more real, deep, honest, authentic conversation with itself. This country needs to take a fearless moral inventory. This country needs to examine the exact nature of our own wrongs. This country has to recognize the gap between our own deeper values, our democratic values, our American values and our deeper humanitarian values, the gap that too often exists between those values and our governmental policy. I don't see the traditional political establishment having that conversation because it is the establishment that drove us into this ditch. And the idea that only those whose careers are entrenched in the mindset that drove us into this ditch are the only ones we should consider qualified to lead us out of the ditch. I personally find preposterous. So I'm having the conversation that I believe is the one that we need to be having as a country in order to genuinely repair ourselves.
0: Okay. So the, the country is more divided today than any time I've seen in recent history. So if elected president, how do you bring the nation together?
1: Well, first of all, one of the things that we've seen with this president is how the consciousness of the president really affects the ethers. You know, people, no matter what they, whether they agreed with Barack Obama or not, he and his wife demonstrated through their personal interactions, through just their consciousness that was on display all the time, regardless of whether or not you agree with every policy. They demonstrated a respect. They demonstrated an exclusivity, an inclusivity. I mean, they demonstrated a. A, a unity in their own outlook that I believe really helped to unify the country. And first, and the first thing I would do, and I think that this is true of any any, demo, any democrat actually who wins, just demonstrating a sense that we ourselves understand. You know, to me, it's not just that we're divided; it's that we're not being spoken to on the level where we are one. I think that's part of it where unity in diversity is the great american principle on one hand we celebrate our differences we celebrate our diversity america at its best doesn't try to minimize the differences it celebrates the differences but with an underlying fealty common fealty to certain principles of justice equal opportunity and and brotherhood that that that, uh, that allows all things to hold together. The very fact that those things are in my consciousness, I think is on display in my personal interactions as well as the policies that I would propose.
0: Now, let me ask you this, this question. Now, reparations for the descendants of enslaved Africans are a deal breaker in this election for many black voters, including myself. What made you take a bold step in proposing <laughs> slavery reparations be paid to the descendants of enslaved Africans?
1: Well, well, I wrote a book called Healing the Soul of America that was published in 1997 where I talk about reparations. This is a topic that I've been aware of and talking about for decades. In my book, Healing of America, 1997, I talked about um, wealth inequality, corporatocracy, mass incarceration, racial disparity, reparations. This is This is not some new conversation that I just – thought about one day. This is something that has been on my mind uh, for many, many years. I don't see it, for me, I'm a white woman. I don't see this as a black agenda. I see this as an American agenda. As I said to you earlier, America needs to take a fierce moral inventory. We have to examine the exact nature of our character defects. Catholics go to confession. For Jews, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur is 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 the most uh, holy day of the year. I come from a spiritual background. you got to face your darkness. Racism is a spiritual darkness. It is a spiritual malfunction that has been with us from the beginning. I don't believe, however, that we have to continue to burden every generation with it. We have certainly made progress from slavery. We ended slavery. We dismantled We dismantled uh, segregation. But the, the, to say that we still don't have more to do is just not it is not aligned with our historical facts much less the spiritual principles that really allow a system to repair so i i if i'm ta- having a serious conversation about america transforming if i'm having a serious conversation about america having a bright future i can't honestly do that without talking about cleaning up the past this is still an issue where there are things to clean up from the past, and that's what makes me do it.
0: So on your website, you mentioned about forming an esteemed council to help with the disbursement of reparations, and when we kinda heard that, some people saying, okay, well, who gonna be on this council? Because there are certain people that we feel that maybe they wouldn't be the best fit, but how would you select that council?
1: Well, obviously the selection of this council would be pivotal. I know there are some people, I think of Professor Sandy Darity at Duke University, from whom I've learned. I think of people like Tana nehisi Coates. There are people who have spent years who are scholars on this topic. So uh, it, it would not be, you know, one of the things, I, one of the first things I do is I would speak to Professor Darity. There are some people who have spent years and in, in academia, in politics, in in culture, etc. cetera, And I have heard, you know, in conversation with uh, Mr. Darity and others, Professor Darity and others, there's the issue of gender equality, that there be women on the council as well as men, that there be age diversity, because a lot of the older leaders, the elder leaders have some differences in how they look at things with some of the younger. Although, to be honest, I think a lot of that would be decisions made within The black community. So, for instance, let's say we get five people along the line of a Professor Darity. Let's say, let's say we come up with five people that there's enough consensus among some people who are already known to 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 be serious voices on this topic, and then they start, you know, and then it's a process. And I don't think it would be a quick process either, because I I would think you'd need what thirty people on a council like this. You'd be talking about a lot of money. So it can't be that much money can't be decided on by like five people getting together over dinner one night. Uh, so I would think 20 to 30 people. Uh, and it would be a, a very um, serious process. And I would not be the only person involved, obviously, in choosing who
0: those people would be. Yeah, would so be if, if I could make a suggestion, Dr. Claude Anderson has a lot of work in that department. So, you know, if you just could research his work. Um, where is
1: Claude Anderson? Is he at a university or where would I find him?
0: Oh, you can find him online very easily. He's He worked for a few uh, presidents in the past, so just look him up, Dr. Claude Anderson. We can even email you some of his work.
1: Great. Thank you for that. Thank you.
0: Okay, so let me ask you a question also. What would you do to end the school-to-prison pipeline?
1: Well, the school-to, you know, the, the word that so many people use today is intersectionality. So this is the deal about the the cradle-to-prison pipeline. One of the pillars of my campaign, along with reparations, is the issue of millions of traumatized, chronically traumatized American children. We have millions of American children who go to schools where there aren't even libraries. We have millions of American children who go to schools where they don't even have the adequate school supplies to teach a child to read. If a child cannot read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically diminished, and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. A lot of these children because you mentioned the cradle we have American children who are traumatized before they even go to preschool we have American children and millions of American children who go to schools where in in what are called America's domestic war zones where the PTSD of a child is no less severe than the PTSD of a returning veteran from Afghanistan or Iraq to me these children these children who are in that because that's who they are, and they're mainly black and brown children in that prison-to-cradle pipeline. To me, this is your national humanitarian emergency. These are full-on citizens of the United States of America. These children should be rescued. They should be rescued no differently than if they were uh, the victims of a natural disaster. Now, we have a political system, that simply normalizes their despair. Because they're not old enough to work, so they don't have any financial leverage. They're not old enough to uh, vote, so they're not a constituency. That is why I want a United States Department, cabinet-level Department of Children and Youth, so that we can coordinate. These children need not only schools. First of all, we're the only advanced country that makes the, the primary, uh, the, uh, the primary, the bulk of our educational funding is based on property taxes. That's outrageous. Every, every school in America should be a palace of learning, a temple of the arts and culture, every school. If you want to see genius, if you want to see the, the potential, not only for peace in our society, but for untold unrealized billions and trillions of dollars, I'll tell you where you see it, sir. You see it in the brains of every kindergartner, every kindergartner in every, every neighborhood in this country. That's where our attention should go. If you want your economy to be great 10 years from now, you pay more attention to these 10 year olds today, because when you talk about the cradle to prison, okay, by 10 years old, by by 8 to 10, that's why we need a massive realignment of our investment in the direction of children 10 years old and younger. So that when I talk about reparations and I talk about a department of children and youth, they're very – it's all very connected. And right. then everything – that's why intersection – that's why it's all about economics. It's all about criminal justice. All of the things that we all know are, that, that are tied in this single um, thread, you know, of – Injustice, really.
0: Yeah, now many children feel unsafe in public schools. Children went to Washington with the Mars Fire Lives, yet yeah, Washington has done nothing to prevent the next school shooter. What would you do to protect children in American schools? And we just had a school shooting in Denver.
1: So we don't have common sense gun safety measures. Why? We have the, the majority of Americans want universal background checks. The majority of Americans uh, want to outlaw bump stocks. The majority of Americans do not want to see military-style assault rifles in the hands of the average citizen. Why don't we have those gun laws? We don't because it would cut into short-term profits for gun manufacturers. That's what's wrong with this country. This country, Our government functions more to advocate for short-term profits for huge multinational corporations, in this case your gun manufacturers, than to advocate for the people and the planet on which we live. Right now, we cannot over the, the current uh, um, makeup of the Supreme Court, we cannot overturn Citizens United anytime soon. But what I will do, I have two ideas about this. Number one, first thing I'll do, is submit to Congress legislation to establish public funding of federal campaigns. Now, unless you have a Democratic Senate as well as House, it's not gonna go anywhere. But we th- we have got to cut off the supply of money. As long as gun manufacturers, rather than the will of the people runs our, our our agenda, then that part will not be dealt with. Number two, we should lower the voting age to 16 because we have proven, those who are older than 16 have proven ourselves inadequate to the task of protecting our children. We have proved ourselves inadequate to the task of protecting them and furthering their good. And our Declaration of Independence says that God gave unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all men that governments are instituted to secure those rights. The rights of those children, the, the, the rights of those children to pursue happiness is as important as the right to bear arms. And these children, if anybody has a say, should have a say, it's these children who go to school every day with that fear in the back of their minds. So I, I'm, the, those two things would start cutting off that that it, it's like an addict, we've got to cut off the supply. So public funding for federal campaigns and let's lower the voting age to 16 and that both of those things will do a lot.
0: Now let me think about something that's very, very uh, important and is a very hot topic, gentrification. It, it has displaced many out of traditional African-American neighborhoods. Homeowners have seen their affordable property taxes skyrocket due to to unaffordable prices, causing the homeowners to lose their property, some of them. What will you do as president to combat this nationwide problem?
1: Well, sir, it's all part of the same matrix by which government, in the cases of gentrification, you're talking about local governments, where local governments will say, well, we want to give the tax break. We want to make it easier for these huge, fancy stores to come in. We want to make it easier for these huge, fancy, everything you're saying to come in, because then it will... uh, it will bring in wealthier people, and then wealthier people will buy those stores because they'll like it. And then those wealthier people will have a higher tax base, and because we have a higher tax base, we'll have more money. Okay, that's one way of looking at money. I look at money differently. I see it differently. I say we're going to have a higher tax base and a, and in a, a higher quality society because we are going to help people make it so local governments as well as state governments as well as the federal government should be more involved through universal health care through raising of the middle uh, uh, a minimum wage through cancellation of college loans and through making high uh, high quality higher education available this gives more people to it gives the opportunity more people to be in the game otherwise whether you know whether it's uh, san francisco or brooklyn uh, everything that you're saying it's happening all over this country and it's pushing people out. It's pushing people out, exactly as you said, so that they can't afford to live in the neighborhoods that they and their parents and their grandparents lived in.
0: Correct. And this issue, like I said, it's just so polarizing for some people that that's why we had to ask you this question. But another thing that's very polarizing as well is that maybe about a week or so ago, we saw you posted a tweet speaking about white nationalism and you likened it to terrorism. What would you do to combat an ignore domestic terror threat?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because the uh, law enforcement agencies in this country have been talking about this for a long time. And when they first started talking about it, I remember years ago, it was, um, there was a report that came out from FBI or Department of Justice or someone saying that the biggest terrorist threat in the United States was white nationalism. And there was all this brouhaha political forces in this country who didn't who, who didn't like that. Uh, so first of all, I would unleash the powers you know who you the president appoints the head of things such as Department of Justice, and my Department of Justice would be on this, on this because we know more, we have known more. We also have a president, as we know, who is not above saying you have Nazis marching out through the streets of Charlotte's saying. Jews shall not replace us, and a president who's saying there are good people on both sides. This is an area where, for me, there's no moral equivocation, and I would have a Department of Justice that is very, very empowered and also deeper conversations uh, with the people in social media companies about things that can be done uh, to rat out some of these things. We've seen over and over again in in these cases, including this young man who... um, It was interesting. The man who killed uh, the woman at the synagogue recently, I I was reading about this. He had actually posted on Facebook that he was going to do it. And he said that he had had set a mosque on fire and some very alert citizen had read his post, looked at what he wrote, looked up about the fire and went, oh, my God that that fire really did happen called the FBI or the police i can't remember which and the police actually did their due diligence the the person who called was not ignored that was just a case where tragically there wasn't there just wasn't time there just wasn't time so in that case the system as best as we could do it did did people did perform the the law enforcement performed and the person who called in performed but we just need to we all need to be more alert we all need to be uh you know, it's just kind of like we go to airports and we say uh, and we hear them over and over again. If you see anything suspicious, if you if you see anything suspicious, we're going to have to become a society that is far more um, alert and a far more emboldened. Um. Unfortunately, I, you know, the, the words emboldened law enforcement doesn't usually come out of my mouth um, for other reasons. But, in this particular case, I think that our intelligence agencies need to be empowered to be far more on top of it, because this is a very serious and very real threat uh, to our society
0: yes it, it really is, and it's you know a lot of us don't feel safe you know dealing with those kind of people, and they have like a free reign to run around, and no one does anything um, but now, and- let me ask you a question: Donald Trump, you know th- by a lot of his tweets and comments, he has you know alienated a lot of people, for instance, some allies you know, definitely he's disrespected a lot of African nations and through the process and many has lost confidence in America. What would you do to repair and restore confidence in America on the world stage?
1: One of the first things I do is I would call the leaders of Europe almost immediately upon my arrival in the office and say, we're back. I think that the world would be, very, very happy, except for the big dictators that he that he cozies up with all the time. I think the leaders of the great democracies would be very, very happy uh, to see someone take the stage who has a very different view of the world. We have sacrificed our moral leadership throughout the world. Our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents would be rolling over in their graves. An example, perfect example, for instance, is Saudi Arabia. For the sake of $450 billion in an arms sale, we are giving aerial support to uh, Saudi Arabia's genocidal war in Yemen. Tens of thousands of people have starved, many of them are children. There was actually a bipartisan effort to uh, stop the president from doing this, and the president was able to override it, unfortunately. And now, to be honest, if we're all going to be honest, which we should be, uh, this administration is saber-rattling uh, towards Iran and towards Venezuela. I would have a very, very different Uh, view of the world and very, very different behavior in terms of our foreign policy. We would begin by reclaiming our moral principles. We used to be seen as a moral leader in the world. Not that anybody ever thought we got it all right all the time. We were known for at least trying. The Dalai Lama himself told me that the world does not see the United States as a big champion of democracy around the world. We the first uh, CEO of this particular administration had been the CEO uh, for sorry the first secretary of state had been the CEO of Exxon. That tells you everything. So, it, when I'm president there will be a world-class envir- uh, world-class humanitarian and diplomat who is head of our state department and we will be known uh, through our behavior towards refugees, our behavior towards the desperate people of the world, and our and our behavior towards genuinely democratic systems. It will be no longer, we will no longer be known as the great hypocrite of the world, and we will be known for our adherence to the values on which we purport to stand.
0: But what would be your policy toward Africa? Yeah. And the reason why I'm focusing on that is because Donald Trump specifically had made an expletive about Um, those countries and Africa is definitely a place where many of the resources throughout the world are at and we want to know just what would be your policy toward Africa.
1: Well you know it's interesting because among other things our economic policies are not good economics. They have nothing to do with actually um, building economic value into 20 years from now. Africa is a place where the economic potential is astounding and I'll tell you who knows it is China. And I think that for the United States not to be in there in a non-exploitative way, that's the point. You know, it, it, some, some people would say, even Donald Trump would say, well, wow, there's a lot of business we could do in Africa. But often when the United States, from a strictly corporatist agenda, goes in someplace, it's not to do righteous commerce so much as it is to exploit. So I have great, uh, uh, great respect uh, for many aspects of of, Afri- of African culture. Uh, not just in terms of, of resources that are there, not just in terms of economic opportunities, but so culturally rich, so artistically rich, so aesthetically rich, so much in terms of the natural resources, not only in terms of economic value, but in terms of value to the planet, in terms of animals, etc. So I would seek to have with Africa the same kind of righteous commerce and righteous relationship that I would seek to have with the rest of the world.
0: Now, the majority of America's prisons are filled with nonviolent inmates. Out of more than two million prisoners, 1.3 million are jailed in state prisons alone. How are you in mass incarceration?
1: Well, there are two things involved here. Well, there are three things involved here. Um, one of them has to do with the first step that is being taken, the Jared uh, and Van Jones, we are starting to have a little more of an enlightened attitude about how some of these people should not be there, and also in terms of once somebody, it, it's not just mass incarceration, what I'm concerned about is what happened that so many people got there to begin with, and also what's happening to make it so difficult for people after they get out to become productive members of society you, we just let people out and say well here's a hundred bucks and good luck to you so we have to have, I believe, the state to provide much more, you know, once somebody has paid their debt to society, they've paid their debt to society, and we should be doing everything possible to help people then regain this position of re, uh, of of productive citizen within our society, which should include, by the way, voting rights. Secondly, I say legalize marijuana. And as soon as you legalize marijuana, get rid of so many people who are in jail who should absolutely not be, uh, absolutely should not be. And anybody who is there uh, for a marijuana-related crime should be immediately uh, out. There are so many people. You know, I heard a Supreme Court justice from Michigan say once, it's too easy to get in and it's too hard to get out. The other thing has to do with what happens before Uh, People are in prison, particularly among populations of color, where you have among police laxer, uh, more lax standard of engagement uh, requirements. So, for instance, if you're walking, if you're going through a a wealthy white neighborhood, a policeman, there are a lot of requirements before the policeman has the right to stop you. But in a high crime neighborhood or a disadvantaged neighborhood, the police, the Supreme Court has actually given the police um, a lower bar for what it would take to then not only pull you over, but also take you in. So the, the role of the president, among other things, has to do with who you uh, um, who you um, appoint. And I would have a, a Department of Justice, officials at the Department of Justice, starting with the, sec, uh, the Attorney General, who would be instructed and expected to be very cognitively Cognizant of and reactive to the deep systemic injustices, particularly racial injustices that have to do with uh, the very existence of private, of private uh, um, prisons. I don't even think prisons should be privatized. And that's how all this started. When you have an urban industry where, with an economic investment, see, the, the thing is, whether it's big pharma or, or mass incarceration or any of these other things where people have actually turned human suffering. Into a multi-billion-dollar business, there is something so immoral about that. None of us should be making our money off the suffering of others. And so, what's happened with the uh, with with mass incarceration and prison building becoming a uh, urban uh, industry and a big one at that? Had, these people have had a vested financial interest in more people serving time. That needs to end. And uh, there is no moral equivocation on my part whatsoever about this.
0: When a person do get out of prison, do you believe that employers should be able to discriminate against a potential employees past prison prison record? No, no, I don't. That's usually what happens. You have people that come out of jail and they say, I want to change my life. And then the probation officer say, Hey, you got to get a job. And then they can't get a job. So would that be something that you could be putting in the EEOC possibly? Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's a level of discrimination.
0: Correct. And then I got one more question for you. Republicans are working tirelessly to stop American citizens from voting in elections. Now, black Americans couldn't vote until the voting rights act and which was gutted a few years ago. Will you fight to ensure all Americans can vote?
1: In 1965, we passed the Voting Rights Act to ensure that black people have access, uh, equal access to the polls. In 2013, the John Roberts-led Supreme Court, as you yourself just said, started chipping away at the Voting Rights Act. And when they did that, that's what enabled all these voter suppression efforts to pop up all around the country. This is, this is an egregious transgression an egregious transgression against uh, the, the the very principle of equality of opportunity. So I'm, I'm on that, I get it, I think it's terrible and that would include people who have been incarcerated. Once somebody has paid their debt to society and they walk out that door, their debt to society has been paid. And we know in terms of the broader issue of voter suppression efforts, we know how many of them are aimed. Let's say you have some woman, let's say she's 80 years old, let's say she lives in a rural community somewhere. She doesn't have a driver's license because she hasn't driven in 20 years. And she doesn't have anyone. She doesn't have a grandchild or someone who could drive her to get her to get her um, uh, to to get her her picture taken on some piece of governmental ID. And so she shows up to vote, and she has her electric bill. And they say no, and they turn her down. No, I'm on it. I'm on it. And we also know why they're doing it.
0: Oh yes, we definitely know why they're doing it. So, uh-huh. Marianne, do you have any upcoming events that people could possibly go listen to you live?
1: Yes, I do. Uh, you know, this morning, it's interesting, based on what you were saying, I'm in Detroit right now. And this morning I did a town hall with a former Detroit chief of police, Ralph Godby, who is now the chief of police of the Detroit school system. And it was about policing Uh, and uh, criminal justice among um, in neighborhoods of color and uh, uh, black and brown communities here in Detroit and elsewhere. Um, So that's what I did this morning. Tomorrow night, I will be doing a uh, regular town hall at Unity Temple here in Detroit. And if somebody goes to my website at Marianne2020.com, you can see, you know, get on the mailing list and see Uh, uh, you know if I'll be in in your neighborhood in your city you'll certainly hear about it and also the things that I do that are you know live stream and so forth so if somebody and volunteering so if somebody goes to Marianne2020.com it's all there
0: okay and so the first debate is in June correct
1: yeah June 26th and 27th in uh, Miami
0: all right. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you are living in that area, you possibly can go listen to the debates. I mean, that would be very interesting yeah. here. We have a lot of candidates.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, make sure you go to Marianne2020.com. Look at all the issues she stands for. Is she stands for a lot. I mean, I couldn't ask about every particular policy because she has some good ones, especially one about food. I like that one. So, just check out her website. Actually, read through it because we have to get to know the candidates for who they are. So, Marianne, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us.
1: Thank you, sir. Thank you so much.